Father God, um, we love you and we thank you for your unfailing and faithful love um, for us and in the many ways that you manifest and have manifested your love for us, mainly in and through Christ and his atoning work. God, there's so much on my mind this morning as I've, I've studied this text and there's so much that I, 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 I want to say and I'd like to say and, and yet I know that I, I, I can't um, and, and I'm afraid that it'll all just come out jumbled. Um, and, and so God, I pray that you would, you would use me um, this morning, that you would use me in spite of me, God, and the words that come out of my mouth would be the words that, that, that you would have me say, that, that the truths of your word would, would be clear, and God, that you would use your truths to continue to, to, to teach us, to, to conform us, that we wouldn't just hear what you have to say, but that we would truly know and, and, and understand and, and, and seek to apply these truths to our lives. God, we know that your, your word is not about us. It's, it's, it's about Christ. Um, and yet it does, it does affect us. And so we pray that, Jesus, that you would, above all else, be glorified. And yet we would be changed as that, as that happens. Lord, you deserve all, all glory, all honor and, and praise. It's, it's my desire that that would be so in my life. It's, it's my desire that that would be so in this church that is in each one of our lives individually and corporately as, as well. And, and we, need, we need you to do that in us and, and through us. And so we ask um, that you would do that. We do love you, Lord. It's in your name. Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to continue um, Acts chapter 2 today specifically. We're going to be in verses 24 through 36, and it was three sermons ago, however that works week-wise, that I started this kind of mini-series within Acts, and I was calling it Peter's Pattern um, for Preaching, and so Peter's Pattern pattern for Preaching Part 3 today, that's, that's where we're at. Um, at the very beginning... Um, uh, we had looked at three main points, and that was that his his preaching was bold and unashamed. It was expositional, and then it was gospel centric. And then last times so it would have been the beginning of we're in July, so it would have been the beginning of June. I have to stop and think, right? Um, we said that that we took that gospel centric and kind of focused it in, and we said that his preaching was Christo. Centric, right? So we kind of took the gospel and, and narrowed it, or he took the gospel and narrowed it specifically to Christ. We so said there were four specific things that Peter preached. All these P's, the alliteration. Randy's great at alliteration. I think it just tongue ties me. But Peter preached specifically in this sermon, right? The first Christian sermon. He preached the, the life of Christ, right? The death of Christ. That's what we got to last week, and I'm going to read passage here in just a moment, or not last week, last month, the resurrection, as well as 
the exaltation of, of Jesus and the exaltation of Jesus includes his ascension. He was, he was exalted to the right hand of the Father as he ascended from earth into heaven. So today we're going to look at the resurrection and the exaltation. And Lord willing, next week we're going to examine really the, the response. Anytime the gospel is preached, uh, uh, be it to believers or non-believers, it demands a response. Um, people cannot help but responding to the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily in the affirmative, okay? There are people that hear the gospel, and they will reject the gospel. That's still a response. There's people that are going to hear the gospel, and they're going to respond to the gospel. But it's one or the other. You can't, you can't hear the gospel and not respond in one way or the other. Either, either for an unbeliever, either you will repent and believe unto salvation, or you will reject the gospel and, and remain in your sin. Right? And for the believer, the believer will either hear the gospel again right, and rejoice at the glorious truths of God's gospel and how he has saved you, right, and pray that God uses that to not only convict you from sin or of sin, but to keep you from sin, right? Or the believer is going to hear that and not respond in affirmative. Maybe, maybe ignore it, maybe not rejoice in it, maybe wallow in selfishness or pride or whatever the case might be. But regardless, the gospel demands a response. And we will respond one way or another, believers or unbelievers. So, so read with me if you will. I'm going to read from verses 22 through uh, 36, Acts chapter 2. But again, our text today is 24 through, um, through 36. But starting in verse um, 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set, on his, um, set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 24, listen. 
Mohammed is dead. Mahatma Gandhi is dead. Gautama Buddha is dead. But God raised him up. Jesus, folks, is alive. The resurrection of Jesus proves, and we're going to look at four things this morning from verses 24 through 32. Um, The resurrection of Jesus proves, at least probably proves way more than four things, but from this text anyway, proves four things that we're going to look at. All right. So the first is this. The resurrection proves that Jesus is God. And this is what Peter's proclaiming to these men. So I've tried to keep this, this sermon and these points focused on what Peter was doing with this text. There's a lot more we could say about this, um, but I want to keep it focused on what Peter is trying to in part convey to them, okay, or what I believe he's trying to convey to them. Um, the resurrection proves that Jesus is God. So who raised, who raised Jesus from the dead? Well, in verse 24, it says this, right? I read it a moment ago. God raised him up. So who raised Jesus from the dead? Well, God raised him from the dead. So then I ask you this. Who God? I mean, we know there's only one God, right? But, but who God raised him up, right? God is triune, right? We have God the Father. We have God the Son. And we have God the Holy Spirit. So when we, when we say that God raised him up from the dead, does, does it, was that God the Father that raised him up? Was, was it the triune God working together? Who God? Let's look at Acts chapter 5, verse 30. And in answering this question, who God, right? How, how God rose him up, right? It's going to point to the divinity of, of Jesus. Acts chapter 5, verse 30. says this, it says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. So we know that God, in that passage, is specifically, right, referring to God, the Father. So we say, okay, well, well, who God raised him? Well, it says here in Acts 5.30 that God, the Father, was at work in raising Jesus from the dead. Let's look at Romans chapter 8, verse 11. Romans 8:11 If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you great passage um this passage specifically proclaims that what well the Holy Spirit was at work in raising Jesus from the dead, who consequently will also raise us from the dead as well. Great promise that we have in Christ because of Christ. So we see in Acts 5.30 that God the Father was at work and rose him from the dead. We see in Romans 8.11 that the Holy Spirit right, rose him right, from the dead. 
Let's look at John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verse 19. This is right after or during Jesus when he was cleansing or cleansed the temple. John 2.19, it says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. Now, he wasn't, he wasn't talking about the physical temple that he just cleansed, right? He says, destroy this temple, temple speaking of his body, and in three days, what does he say? He says, I will raise it up. He also says, right? He willingly lays down his life, and he says that he will take it back up again. Right. This text, these texts brought together, right, clearly demonstrate the deity of Jesus and proclaim the reality of the triunity of God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all three worked together in the resurrection of Jesus. God the Father was active in raising Jesus from the dead. God the Holy Spirit was active in raising Jesus from the dead. God the Son, Jesus, what? Rose himself from the dead. So who rose Jesus from the dead? God. The triune God of history, the triune God of everything, rose Christ Jesus from the dead. So again, this passage, right? Saying that God rose him from the dead isn't just a simple proclamation that God the Father was at work in raising Christ from the dead but he himself was at work in raising himself from the dead working together with the other two persons of the Trinity now the deity of Jesus is also proclaimed in the reality that Jesus had and has mastery over death God raised him up Loosing the pains of death, speaking of, of Jesus, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It wasn't possible that Jesus could be held by death. Listen, death, okay, Jesus is God. It's important to establish this first, that he is divine. He is God of very God. He is God, the eternal son, now incarnate in man, okay? God I'm sorry, God. Death is God's tool of judgment. Death is God's tool of judgment. God instituted death for the purpose of punishing the unrighteous. Turn to Genesis chapter 2. And we know as, as you're turning there and and I was thinking about these passages and thinking about death being God's, God's tool um, to 
punish the unrighteous, and it's a, it's a just tool, it's a righteous tool. Um, and yet we know that God, according to Ezekiel, what? God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, right? And just because he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked doesn't mean the death of the wicked is not just, because it is just. And he is glorified in that. But it, it doesn't mean he delights in that. You know, I, I was thinking about that in relation to punishing our children or, or disciplining our children, right? Um, and, and I know, listen, anytime we try to draw an analogy between anything and God, the analogy always falls short. I mean, just because just, 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 it's God and, and just how it is. I don't, I don't delight in disciplining or punishing my children. Um, I, I, I hate it. But it's right. And, and, and it's necessary. And it's just, or it should be anyway, right? Um, and I think that's the way it is with God. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. But it is right. And it is just. And he is glorified in it. But we see it in Genesis 2, um, 15 through 17. Familiar passage probably for most. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Right? And death is, is God's tool of judgment against the unrighteous. Romans 6.23, we won't, we won't turn there, part A. Most of us are familiar with this passage, right? For the wages, for the wages of sin, the, the punishment of sin is, is what? God says it's, it's death. Right? I once heard Todd Friel, wretched, wretched radio, wretched TV, say that death, and I've never heard this before, and, and it's one of those things that has, has struck me and has, has really stuck with me. Death is the final act of glorifying God prior to entering into eternity. Even as believers, right? If, if you're a believer, um, our physical death is still, is still just, right? And, it, and it's the just penalty for our, for our sin. And, and God will be glorified in that, right? But again, as believers, we have, we have a hope to come. Right, and that hope is that, that that our bodies that we have now, right, that are corrupt. And I'm, I was talking about this with my boys the other day. You know, our bodies are dying, right? From the moment we're born, right, our bodies are rapidly progressing towards death, and that's right, and that's just. But it's only it's only temporal, it's only temporary. Right? Listen, back to Christ though. Death had no control, no power, no mastery over him, in part because he is God and, in fact, has always had mastery over death. Listen, Jesus didn't master death all right, through his, his, his resurrection. All right? I mean, in an experiential way, yes, he conquered death for us. All right? But he didn't gain power over death in his crucifixion and his resurrection, he's always had power. He's always had mastery. He's always had control over death, right? 
what he did was demonstrated it through his resurrection. And in demonstrating that, he proves that he is God. The resurrection of Jesus also proves that he was and is sinless. He said that death was God's tool of judgment um, for the purpose of punishing the unrighteous. Well, Jesus was and is righteous in and of himself. He has a positive righteousness, right? As believers, we don't have a positive righteousness. Adam and Eve, prior to their sin, didn't have a positive righteousness. Their bank account was a big fat zero, right? Prior to their sin, right? God created them the moment of their, not really birth, but we'll call it birth, right? The moment of their inception, right? They, they, they were sinless, right? With a zero balance in their righteousness account, right? We're born with a negative balance in our righteousness account, okay? Now, as believers, we have a positive righteousness in our, in our account, but that's not our righteousness. It's an imputed righteousness. It's a foreign righteousness. Jesus, right, from the moment of his conception, okay, as the God-man had and always has and always will have a, a positive plus balance in his righteousness account, and it's his and it's his alone. All right. So as the righteous one, the grave, Hades, when you, when you see this in this text, Hades, it's, just, it's referring to the grave, okay, not hell. It's referring to the grave. The grave could not hold him and had no power over him because it wasn't his place. He didn't belong there. Death in the grave wasn't meant for him, right? Wasn't designed for him. I mean, in a way it was because he rescued us from it, right? But it was designed for the unrighteous and designed to hold, if you will, the unrighteous. Verse 25, for David says, back in Acts chapter 2, concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also dwell, will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. And he was talking about the grave. Okay, not, not hell. But you won't abandon my soul to Hades. Or let your Holy One see corruption. Listen, this, this is about Christ here. We'll look at that more here in just a moment. But Jesus, right, the three days that his body was in the tomb didn't experience any physical corruption or decay. All right, so when we die, right, our body immediately begins to decay. I mean, worm food, here we come, all right? Our body is breaking down, right? This is the result of sin, right? The result of death, right? When Christ died, death having no power or control over him, his flesh didn't even begin to decay. So, so I'm thinking about this, like just, just rationally, practically, trying to bounce it around in all the empty space in my head. And, and I'm like, okay, so Lazarus, and I'm just trying to compare, because right, Lazarus was raised from the dead, right? Which 
I still, I'm going to have this conversation. And these are conversations I'm going to have in heaven, I hope, right? I mean, I'm one convinced that when he was raised back to life, that, that he didn't, I mean, he, he couldn't have fully understood where, I, I don't know how that worked. I mean, because that would be getting the short end of the stick, wouldn't it? I mean, here I was dead and in heaven. Now, he wouldn't have been with Christ, though, because Christ was here on earth. So maybe he wasn't getting the short end of the stick because he actually got to come back and be with Jesus for a little bit. I, I'm not really sure how that worked, right? But, but the poor guy then had to die again. So we don't know too many people that have died twice, right? Only those raised in Scripture had to actually die twice, which, again, had to that's shorten the stick, right? I'm thinking, you know, again, I don't know. These are conversations that I want to have with, with Lazarus, right? Um, but when Lazarus was raised from the dead, right? I mean, it was several days, right? I think it was three, right? Making sure that he was, in fact, dead. When he rose from the dead, he stunk. I mean, I, again, I don't know exactly how that worked, but death and decay had... Had, had taken hold of him. Now, I'm sure when he was rose from the dead, it wasn't like a zombie, you know, like living dead. He was, God probably put him back together, but there's still no doubt in my mind that that tomb probably didn't stink of death, right? His body was decaying, and Jesus brought it back to life, okay? When Jesus rose from the dead, listen, there was no decay because death had no power over him, right? And it had no power over him because he was and he is the sinless Son of God, God the Son. So, the resurrection proves that Jesus is God. It proves that Jesus was and is sinless. And it proves the satisfaction of wrath. The resurrection of Jesus is God's stamp of approval. God saying this, my righteous wrath against all those who would repent and believe has been satisfied. How do I know that my sins have been forgiven? I mean, how do you know that your sins have been forgiven? I mean, from a, from a, a practical standpoint, I mean, not that, okay, how is a person made right with God? I mean, how, Repent and believe, right? And that's how a person is made right with God, right? I mean, in, in one sense, I mean, what must I do? If someone comes to me and says, what must I do to be saved? Well, you turn from your sin, right? And in turning from your sin, you, 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 then turn, you then turn to Christ. And God saves you, but he doesn't save you on the basis of your turning from sin and, and turning to Jesus. He actually saves you based on the finished, as evidenced through the resurrection, the finished work of Christ and the finished work of Christ alone. Right? I mean, that, that's how a person is made right with God. That's how a person is, is, is saved. Um, but, but what about the believer that doubts, maybe not that repentance and faith is, has taken place, but maybe just winds up in his period and it's like, I mean, but I don't know. I mean, yeah, I mean, I've, I've repented. I've believed. I mean, I truly know that. I truly believe that. But is that it? I mean, are my, are my, are sin, is sin really atoned for? I mean, how do we know that sin has truly been atoned for? Maybe that's the question. My sin, our sin, how do we know? I'll tell you how we know. The resurrection of Christ. He proclaimed on the cross, it is finished. And God demonstrated the fact that it was finished by raising him from the dead. He says, my judgment against your sin has been satisfied. Payment accepted. 
final thing, at least addressing from this text, that it that it proves Peter's trying to um, convey to all these hearers is that the resurrection proves that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who was promised in the garden. He's the one who has been promised throughout all of what we would call Old Testament history. He's the long-awaited Messiah. Peter exposits Psalm 116, 8-11. I'm not going to I'm not going to go there. Uh, we actually um, he quotes it verbatim from the Septuagint, okay? But he exposits this psalm or this part of the psalm in demonstrating or to demonstrate that Jesus is in fact Messiah. Now, just a, a slight rabbit trail. I'm going to take just for a second. All right. This is the first, if you recall, weeks ago, months ago, whenever. This is the first, right, sermon of the church. First, we'll say Christian, Christian sermon. Don't let anyone ever tell you there's no biblical evidence or biblical support for expository preaching. I read an article about, oh, I don't know, two or three weeks ago. Um, there's a panel of four or five Baptist pastors, um, and the title of the article was like, the danger. Anyone read this, or is it just me? I tried to find it yesterday on the internet, and I couldn't find it. So maybe I just dreamt about it. I, she read it, so I, I, it wasn't just me. I didn't just dream it. Thank you. Um, but it was like the dangers of expository preaching, right? And the article was just garbage, make you barf kind of stuff. And these, and some of these men were like, I mean, you know, I mean, reformedish, solid. You would think. I mean, maybe not solid, but they weren't like crazies, you know, um, until they, you know, said some of the stuff they said. But one of the guys made the comment that. Nowhere in Scripture um, do we have evidence of expository preaching. I'm like, what? So here's the deal. Any pastor, preacher, teacher who, who says that nowhere in Scripture we have evidence of expository preaching is either one of two things. Is either a liar, okay, because we have it here in Acts, first sermon of the Christian church, right? right here. He's either a liar or he's a fool because he doesn't know the Word of God. Either way, run from him. All right. But Peter exposits uh, a, a part of the text of, of Psalm 118. He says, for David says concerning him, Jesus, right? I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I might, uh, may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, right now, now this is where Peter starts to exposit. He reads the text, and now he does what? He starts to explain the text. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. He says, we have David confidently expressing that the Lord would not allow his Holy One to be abandoned to the grave 
or suffer bodily decay. Now, I don't know, like, when David wrote this, and this is, again, one of those conversations I'd love to have in heaven. Now, the reality is I don't know that I'm going to remember or think of any of this when, you know, I get to someday in heaven meet them. I might not even be interested in them. I might be like, Jesus is over there, so let's go over there. I, I don't know, right? Um, I'd like to know here, though. Um, you know, in a way, we could say, yeah, David was writing this text about him. Um, but did David really know that this text wasn't about him? I think Peter kind of indicates that, you know, um, as he explains this text, that, that, that David was crying out to God and, and was, in a way, writing about him. But I don't think David truly believed that, that he wouldn't see bodily decay, right? Um, I, you know, I don't believe that at all. I think David was looking forward towards the long-awaited Messiah. Peter points out the obvious, right? Texting about David. He's dead. We got the tomb, and the bones are in the tomb. His body has not been abandoned as in eternally abandoned, but his body is still in the grave. David's with the Lord, right? His soul is with the Lord. His soul's with the Lord now. His bones have long since turned to dust, and who knows what they are now, but, but his body is still, however that works in the economy of decay and decomposition and what happens with all that, but, but his body is still in the ground, right? This passage couldn't be about David. Peter says it's about Jesus, God's Messiah. The resurrection of Jesus, okay, fulfills this prophecy. That's a prophecy, Psalm 116, 8 through 11. That's a prophecy, messianic prophecy, right? The resurrected Jesus fulfills this prophecy, thus demonstrating what? Demonstrating that he is, in fact, the Messiah, God's Messiah. He's the Savior. John Polhill says this. He's a, he's a commentator. Um, his commentary on Acts is amazing. Um, I, I, I think it's the best commentary on Acts. Well, I've only got like six of them, so I'm sure there's more. But the commentary on Acts that I would point somewhere, someone to. John Polhill says, the psalm, or this psalm, is not used to prove the resurrection, but rather the messianic status of Jesus. The proof of the resurrection is the eyewitness reports of the disciples. So, so again, Peter's using the psalm to prove, again, in part, that Jesus is the Messiah. But the proof of the resurrection comes from where? Well, in part, it comes from 500 eyewitnesses who saw him, who walked with him, who spoke with him, who shared a meal with him. I mean, only a, a, an insane, irrational person would deny the testimony of, of 500 eyewitnesses. I mean, if we had 500 people in the town of Ada, you know, who, who came and testified to us that they just saw some person, no matter if, I'm not talking about some dead person, but just in, in our world, oh, hey, we just saw Blake Sheldon at Walmart. I think you're a liar. No, we'd be like, there's 500 people that saw him. He must have been at Walmart. They must have done this, right? That was the proof of the resurrection, right? It was the eyewitnesses. Uh, another proof, though, we're going to get to here in, in, in verse 33 or verses 33 through 35 that have to deal with the exaltation. Okay, so point three, or, well, sub-point three of, of Christocentric 
preaching, for Peter's parish for preaching. Um, so point three was the resurrection. And we looked at these four things that the resurrection proved concerning the Messiah. Again, I'll, I'll just give them to you. Proves that Jesus is God. Resurrection proves that Jesus wasn't as sinless. Proves the satisfaction of wrath. And four, proves that Jesus is the Messiah. All right. And then in verses 33 through 35, he he, he talks about the exaltation of Christ, right? And, and exaltation isn't the same thing as, as ascension, all right? But the ascension, I guess, if you will, is a part of the exaltation of Christ. I mean, Jesus couldn't have been exalted, all right, if he had not ascended, all right? So, so hopefully that, that kind of helps you keep it clear. And one thing, let me say about this before I go to this point. Again, I know I've mentioned this before. These, these are the thoughts that keep me awake at night. So when we die, we go to be with the Lord, all right, with Christ. Um, not physically, though, right, because our bodies, like David, will be in the grave awaiting, awaiting resurrection, right, because we have that resurrection hope, um, which is just an, incre- uh, an incredible, glorious thing to, to, to think about as well. But when we die, we go to be with the Lord, right, and, and we will be with him where he is, heaven, um, which is very much a, a, a spiritual realm, right? But, but is the essence of reality uh, more so than what we have here? And I often think about, right, so what is that like to be with him without a body? I, I, we can't understand that. We can't comprehend that. How real is that? Well, it's more real than what we have here. And, and, and we, can't, we can't put that together because real is what we can touch and, and, and feel and see and all that stuff. And we're going to be with him spiritually, not physically. And that's, that's, that's why, right? But when we die and we go to be with the Lord, right, he's still in his body, right? When Jesus ascended, there's some believers that say, oh, no, when Jesus ascended, it was really just his spirit ascending and his body kind of just, whoop, I don't know what they think happened to his body. But understand, when Jesus ascended, okay, he ascended, right? He is the, the eternal God-man. He ascended spirit and body, right, inseparable at the incarnation. And so Jesus, where he is in heaven, right, is there as he was on earth. He, he still has his body, but we're not going to have ours when we go to be with him. And So I'm kind of like, how does that work? He's got a body, and we don't, and he's in a spiritual realm physically, and we're in a spiritual realm not physically, and oh, it's, it's, again, things that keep me awake at night, right? We can't, we can't comprehend it, and, and I think it's awesome that we can't comprehend some of these incredible mysteries, I'll say, of God and how he works, and what he does. Um, but okay, rabbit trail, back to where we were. The exaltation, verses uh, 33 through 35. Um, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. So ascension happens. Mm. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Peter proclaiming that Jesus had ascended and is at the right hand of the Father, is to say, okay, this, this idea of him being at the right hand of the Father, 
seated at the right hand of the Father. Seated, his work is done. But him being at the right hand of the Father is to say this. It's to say that he has equal power, authority, dignity, and worth as the Father. It's, again, a proclamation of his deity. Now, I was thinking about this passage. Now, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself because I really haven't spent a lot of time yet. Not there yet, but, but Stephen, right? Jesus at the right hand of the Father actually shows him standing. Only place in Scripture we have him standing at the right hand of the Father. And, and I, was just, I was just thinking, I was thinking about that concept and that idea of, of Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And, or, or not standing, but just being at the right hand of the Father. A proclamation, again, of, of him being God. And when that, when that was probably proclaimed throughout the New Testament, how that had to have just infuriated the, the Pharisees just to say, oh, he's seated at the right hand of God, which is a proclamation of him being God. So again, in his exaltation, we see a proclamation of what? We see a proclamation of his deity, right? The Holy Spirit serves as evidence, okay, of his exaltation. How do we know that Christ has in fact, in fact been exalted and, and, and seated at the right hand of the Father, right? Well, we know because of the Holy Spirit. Peter says this to him. He says, what, what you're seeing today, all right? Remember the, the tongues, okay? Speaking in foreign languages. He says, what you're seeing today, this is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which is evidence of the exaltation of Jesus. Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, being exalted, I added that, being exalted, he, Jesus, has what? Has poured this out, or poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He says, you're witnesses. That's what he's telling the crowd. He says, you're witnesses of this. We have proof of the exaltation because of, of, of this. And then the reality is for us, um, we're witnesses of this as well. How do we know that Christ has been exalted? How do we know that Christ sits at the right hand of the Father, right? Well, we know it intellectually. I mean, we can, we can say, well, intellectually we know this because Scripture tells us this, right? I mean, God's Word proclaims this. So in a way we can intellectually know it. But experientially, right, as believers, we can know this as well. Because at the moment of our salvation, what? We were given the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, as believers, working in us and working through us, right, demonstrates to us experientially that the Son has been exalted and sits at the right hand of the Father. Again, Peter ex uh, exposits, um, exposits Scripture to demonstrate truth. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he and says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. David wasn't going to sit at the right hand of the Father because he wasn't God. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Then in verse 36, Peter makes his final proclamation, at least that we have recorded. Again, we know the text says he said much more than that. But he says this. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
makes this final proclamation that Jesus is both God and Messiah. And Christ is Greek, Messiah is Hebrew, so this, those words are interchangeable, okay? Jesus is both God and Messiah. So here's the thing. Jesus is God. Right? I mean, you, you can deny it. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if you deny it or not. You, you know, a person's affirming or a person's proclamation of Jesus being God or not being God doesn't, doesn't make it so one way or the other. Right? He's God whether or not you say he's God. Right? You deny it, okay, um, but he's still God. Right? You affirm it, you're affirming it doesn't, I mean, he's, he's, he's God. All right, period. All right? Now, he is the Messiah. All right? And again, that's, that's a reality. Um, same as him being God. I mean, you know, you can deny the fact that he, he's God's Messiah. You can affirm the fact that he's God's Messiah. And that, that doesn't change the reality that he, that he is. But, but here's the question. Is he your Messiah? Is, is he your Savior? This Jesus that Peter proclaims, right, through his life, death, resurrection, exaltation. Do you know him? Is he, is he yours? Again, that's a question we all must ask. When confronted with the gospel, we're going to respond. People will respond one way or another, either through rejection, right, or repentance and faith. I'm not going to say acceptance because that sounds too, you know. But people will respond one way or the other. We can't help but not respond. And so if you don't know him, right, if he's not yours and yours and you're not his, right, then I urge you to repent and believe and may today be the day of your salvation. And listen, I say this, and any time Randy or I or Don Curran or, or anyone teaching or in, in, any, in any of this, right, when we, when, we, when we offer that challenge or issue that challenge, right, um, it's not like we're saying, uh, uh, unbelievers, um, this is for you to examine yourself and ask yourself if this Jesus is yours. Um, and believers, you, you don't have to worry about it, right? Listen, this is something that all of us must ask ourselves and examine in our own lives, okay? Uh, whether or not you are a professing believer or a, a professing non-believer, right? Um, it's a good thing for believers to examine themselves, even when it comes to, to, to the basic gospel question of whether or not we've truly repented, turned from sin, and turned to Christ. So, so the gospel call is for all of us. All right, to repent and believe and be saved. So that's the first thing. Final thing is this: um, one is he your savior, right? The next question is this: is this the savior that you proclaim? And I don't mean from a salvific standpoint. Okay, assuming you have, Peter gives us this pattern for preaching Christ, right? For explaining Christ. Um, he gives us, in part, a completed gospel, right? A proclamation of his, again, life, death, resurrection, exaltation, 
as believers, as God gives us opportunity, be it uh, with our, our children, right, fellow believers, our family, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, total strangers on the street, when we have the opportunity to proclaim Christ, right, we need to be faithful to proclaim Him in truth and as full as we possibly can. Sometimes I understand that, that it's hard. Oh, man, you know, I started talking about the life of Jesus, and the guy got mad at me and cussed me out and walked away. All right, well, you were faithful in that part to, to go, right? But as we have opportunity to proclaim the truth of Jesus, right, we need to, at minimum, attempt to do it completely, right, or in fullness. Right? So some things to think about this morning. Uh, as we consider Peter's pattern for, for preaching. And again, as I said last month, we could have called it Peter Preaches the Gospel or Peter's Pattern for Evangelism, right? So next week, um, again, Lord willing, we're, we're going to look at the response, um, the call, really, and the response of Peter's Preaching the Gospel. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this example. Um, uh, we're just, I say example, we thank you for this, this sermon, this message, this gospel proclamation, uh, this everything that it is that we have in your word as, as Peter preached the first uh, sermon, the first Christian sermon, the first sermon of the church um, on, this, on this day of Pentecost. And the example that we do have in his proclamation of, of Christ. I pray you would do it, uh, use it to do a couple things um, in our lives. Um, one, just to challenge us to examine whether or not that, that this Jesus is our Jesus, um, that, that this gospel is the gospel that, that we believe. Lord, that we're challenged, all of us, to, to examine ourselves as to whether or not we've actually repented and, and believed. And, and I pray, God, for those who are here that, that remain in their sin, Lord, that you would save them, that you would do only what you can do, God, and that they would repent and turn from their sin, Jesus, and and turn to you in trust and in faith, God, and that you would just open their hearts and, and their minds to what a glorious thing that, that you've done for us that we don't deserve, that we couldn't do for ourselves, and that it's out of love, love for you that's expressed itself in love for us. God, may today be the day of salvation for many. And for those of us who are saved, God, I pray that it gives us a a, a, a better picture, a bigger picture of, of the gospel of Jesus, of, of who he is and, 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 what, and what he's done and, and that we would know it more fully as we know him more fully and that we would love the gospel more as we come to love Christ more. And I also pray, Lord, that, that you would use this um, as, as a teaching tool because in part it is that, that we would know how to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel, that we would be encouraged to do it as, as you've modeled it in Scripture. God, we know that it's, it's, it's your means and it's your method, that you save people in part through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I pray, Father, that you would, you would use us to that end, that we would, we would be tools, your tools, salvation and the sanctification many Jesus we love you and again we thank you for everything that you've done and everything that we uh, that you will
in your precious and holy name. 